Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419. Case subject is Spectre Philip Harvey. This information pertains to a period ending February 28, 2009. Interview subject is Spectre Phil. Interview number 6-66-041-309. Recall number 10, March 1, 2009. What I want to know is, how can somebody who gave his whole life to music, who made such fucking great records, and you know I did, you've admitted I did, how could they have hated me? How could they still hate me? They don't understand me. How could they have hated me? How could they hate somebody whose records are filled with so much love, and not only love, but honesty, and so much pure fucking talent? But nobody wants to talk about any of that when they talk about me. The only thing anyone thinks of when they think about me is the blood on the tracks. Chapter 10 Phil Spector and Phil Spector I think rage is what comes out when you're disrespected. And rage is what makes you better. I wasn't respected like Gershwin or Berlin. And that lack of respect just built up the anger and rage inside of me, made me do better. It's what made Miles Davis do better. Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, Duke Ellington. All those people did better because they were disrespected. They took that disrespect and they put it directly into their music, into their art. It's what makes their music art. Look at Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett was the biggest cocaine addict in the 1960s. Tony Bennett and cocaine were like peanut butter and jelly in the 1960s. And then years later, he cleans up his act. And nobody talks about his past drug addictions. Nobody treats him with disrespect. But anytime someone talks about Miles Davis, they talk about the drug problems. Even if the drug problems were long behind him. Look at Woody Allen. Woody Allen will always be a pervert, no matter what else he's done. He'll always be scarred because he married his daughter. Even though she's not his daughter, she's his adopted daughter. But that's always on the public's mind. Because the public doesn't like him. And the public doesn't like me. If they like you, they won't talk about those things. It's just the way it goes. If they don't like you, if they think you've done something wrong, 
they'll screw you. The media, the police, that's how the media works. That's how the police work. It's a mob mentality, and you gotta put energy into living it down. Look at the Beatles tapes, the Let It Be tapes. They weren't cared for. They were not guarded. I found them like someone finds trash in a dumpster. And I made something out of those tapes. I turned that pile of trash into a commercial success. It went straight to number one. Such fucking great records. But look how they treat me, how they talk about me, like I was the one who fucked it all up. How could they have hated me? Now, did George Martin touch those tapes? He didn't have anything to do with those tapes. He wanted to be as far from them as possible. But look how they treat George Martin. He was made a sir. Paul McCartney? He was made a sir. Elton John was made a sir. Bob Dylan got an honorary degree from a college. Buddy Holly was given a stamp. Now, I love Buddy Holly, but he only lived three years in rock and roll. I've been around a lot longer than that, and I've made more of an impact. You gotta have some perspective. But who has time for perspective when it's so much easier to jump to a predetermined conclusion? A conclusion where Buddy Holly is a saint and Phil Spector is a problem. Buddy Holly was no saint, I can tell you that. Elton John was no saint. I don't need a stamp, necessarily, but a little respect would go a long way. I've done more for music than any of those people. I've at least done as much as they have. Somebody who gave his whole life to music. But see, that's what I'm talking about. And it's not just disrespect, either. It's misunderstanding. It's the plight of the misunderstood, the misseen. I've always been misunderstood from a very early age. I realized early on that I was a loner in school. I was different. We were poor. Everyone else was middle or upper class. I wasn't popular, wasn't part of any clique. I took that lack of respect, that lack of respect that I felt from a very young age, and I made myself better. They don't understand me. I helped the football players with their homework so that they could pass their classes and stay on the team. And in return, they offered me protection. I've always found that protection comforting, but also necessary. Necessary because I would continue to be misunderstood throughout my life. And it helped me keep those who wanted to disrespect or mistreat me at arm's length. Having bodyguards follow you around is a statement. It's a statement that says, I would like to be left alone. Everyone else in school were a bunch of losers anyway. None of them challenged society or dared to be different. I was the only one who was different, and I had to protect that. People were armed to the teeth, his friends, his bodyguards. When I first broke into show business with the teddy bears in 1958, I was still misunderstood. I should have seen it coming as early as that first song. To know him is to love him. I should have seen the writing on the wall. Because no one knew what it was about. Everyone just thought it was some gooey love song. Some puppy dog love song that Annette sang. Of course they did. The whole world was just like my high school class. Losers, nobodies. They didn't get it. They don't understand me. Nobody knew that that song was about my father. That it was about death. 
that it was a love song to someone in the great beyond. That kind of tragedy leaves a scar. When your father blows his head open, that's not funny. I was just nine when he took his own life. He sat in the front seat of his car back in Brooklyn, connected a tube to the exhaust, put the tube in the window, and just swam in it. And that's what was on his tombstone. To know him is to love him. So much love. The pain is always there. It's a constant. To hurt is a natural phenomenon especially for an artist. Da Vinci felt pain, Wagner felt pain, I feel pain. But I don't get depressed. I don't allow myself to get depressed. It's a waste of emotion. I envy the little old lady who sits in front of the TV set and believes, who prays and believes she'll go to heaven and says amen and just believes it all. I'd like to believe. I resent her and I'm jealous of her. I wish I believed the way that George Harrison believed. I recorded My Sweet Lord with him, and I convinced myself in that moment that I believed. You have to. You have to to make it authentic. That's why I was different from other producers. Special. Most producers just interpret. I would create. It was like what Da Vinci did when he approached a canvas. He would turn himself over to it. Now, on the flip side, I also recorded God with John Lennon, which was about not believing. Not believing in anything other than yourself, you see. It was the complete opposite of George's record. And I approached that the same way I approached My Sweet Lord. I was there to create, to make something that people would be in awe of for years to come. And it didn't matter what I believed. I wish I believed that God would look after me. The way I've been disrespected and misunderstood in my life, I think it's obvious that if there is a God, he's not looking out for me at all. And like John, I only believe in myself. That doesn't bring me much comfort. In fact, it scares me to death. It scares me to death because I may not believe in God, but I know there's a devil. You want to talk about lack of respect? Let's talk about the police. Let's talk about the Los Angeles Police Department, the Alhambra Police Department. I said it before with Lenny Bruce, and I'll say it again with me. The police are too much. An overdose of police. They can't police the bad out of somebody, man, and they can't beat it out of me. They walk the SS walk. They rule with an iron fucking fist. That's how they treat people like me, and people like Lenny. People who are different. People who stand up and say what they think and what they believe. They take it too far. They take it too far with people who have never given any indication that they believe themselves to be above the law. People who put their money where their mouth is. The last time I checked, this was a free country, is it not? I can say what I want, 
print what I want. I'm not breaking any laws. I didn't make any friends with the police over the years. Going back all the way to when Lenny died, I paid for all those full-page ads in Billboard and Cashbox. And then I had a few run-ins with them over the years. The Beverly Hills Hotel and the Daisy Club and all that. All misunderstandings, again. And I had a license to carry the gun. But see, that's how they decide. How they preemptively decide that they don't like you. That you're one of the bad ones. And then they disrespect you. They beat Miles Davis in the head until he bled while he was smoking a cigarette outside Birdland, between sets at his own gig. They had already decided that they didn't like him, because he was black, because he was a musician, because he was in their way on the sidewalk just smoking a cigarette. The cops who came to my home, which is a castle, by the way, the cops who came to my home on the morning of February 3rd, 2003, were the same way. Sixteen cops. Sixteen Alhambra cops showed up on my doorstep. We had called for a paramedic. We had a lady who was injured in the foyer of my home and needed a paramedic. But did they send a paramedic? No. They sent 16 cops who wanted to interrogate me on the stairs outside my home. And meanwhile, this girl is slumped lifeless across the chair in my foyer. Was she alive? Was she dead? I didn't know. And they didn't know either, because they were wasting time arguing with me outside. I'm not a paramedic. They argued with me for 45 minutes before they came inside. That's really what was going on. Guns, 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 and more guns. And when they did come inside, they came inside like animals. They were drunken animals. How do I know that they weren't drunk? No one ever read the cops the riot act that day, the way they read it to me. They came in barnstorming. They were stormtroopers. They were fucking Gestapo. I'm five foot five, barely 140 pounds. They knocked me down. They broke my nose. They gave me two black eyes. They cracked my spine. And then they tasered me with 50,000 volts of electricity. They knocked me down on the floor of my own home. And we were still waiting for the paramedics. They could have saved her. He obviously made a terrible mistake. But it's not terribly surprising that he could make such a mistake. And what about her? I had just met her that night. She didn't even know who I was at first. I barely knew anything about her. All I knew was what she had told me during the few hours we were together that night. I knew she was an actress, though I don't think I'd ever seen any of her movies. But I don't know if she was depressed. Like I said before, I don't let myself get depressed, so I don't know that I would know if I saw it. And again, to hurt is a natural phenomenon. So maybe she was hurting in that moment. I don't know if she meant to take her own life, or if it was an accident. She was intoxicated when I first met her. She took an open bottle of tequila with her from the House of Blues to the car. She was taking Vicodin. She must have hurt. I know hurt. People have said the opposite about me, that I don't have any sympathy or empathy. They've said horrible things about me, about how I treated them. How did I treat Ronnie so poorly? I loved Ronnie. I gave her everything. I think he's always wanted attention. I welcomed these people into my house. Debbie Harry, 
Leonard Cohen, the Ramones, Tina Turner. I had them all to the big house on La Colina. Mi casa es su casa. I saved the Beatles. I got John and George back on their feet when the Beatles broke up. We had to sue from Capitol to get the tapes over. How could they have hated me? How can they still hate me? How could they hate somebody whose records were filled with so much love? People were actually afraid of him. All these people were confused. I think Adriano was confused that morning. The morning of February 3rd. I think he was confused and he was in shock. It's hard to understand what he says half the time. The kid's from Brazil, you know? And he still has a ways to go before he masters the English language. He saw me come out of the house and I was visibly upset, sure. I was holding the revolver. There was blood. There had been a terrible accident. We were in the foyer, me and Lana. I held the gun, she held the gun. At some point, the gun went off. What else is there to tell you? I'm sure I wasn't making any sense when I walked outside to talk to Adriano. The regular guy, Dylan, now maybe he would have understood what I was saying better. If he had been there, maybe he would have told the cops something different and then all of this would have been different. But whatever I said to Adriano, I can't even remember what I said. I think he just misheard what I said and had a hard time communicating that to the authorities. You just aren't in your right mind in that kind of situation. None of us are. It's a shock to the system. You can't think straight, can't talk straight. I've seen him straight, and I've seen him act with that way of his. It was my word against everyone else's words. It had always been my word against everyone else's. Maybe that's where the word genius comes from. The gene in us. What can I say? I wasn't like everybody else. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. You know, somebody once asked me a question. I said, Philip, aren't you lonely in this big house? All those rooms to roam around in. Damn, must be lonely. And you know what I said? I said, you ever live in one room? Very lonely. Just you in the bathroom, man. You in the sink. You in the toilet. Loneliness is a state of mind. You know what's lonely? Feeling like you're the only one on your side. Lonely is having no control over your fate. My fate is in the hands of 12 people who voted for George Bush. What kind of justice is that? The jurors filled out this questionnaire. 45% of them said I was guilty from the get-go. 20% of them said I'm insane. And the judge hates me. How could they have hated me? How is that justice? It's rigged. The whole system is rigged. The cops had their mind made up before they even walked into my house 
at the castle that morning. The jury had their minds made up. The judge, the press, the media. How could they hate somebody whose records are filled with so much love and so much pure fucking talent? You probably have your mind made up. But you don't even know. You haven't even tried to know. They don't understand me. I lost my father when I was nine, man. I learned about true loneliness before anyone should. I lost my father. I lost Philip Jr. Wife after wife left me. I lost John to that lunatic. What about my loss? Doesn't that count for something? And the friends that I thought I had. Were they even friends to begin with? I mean, shit, man. When Ike Turner was down on his luck, when they put him in prison in 1990 for coke, who visited him in prison? Who did? I did, motherfucker. And when he got out, who helped him get on his feet financially? And he's gonna talk about me not paying for his cab to come to a party? When Darlene Love was cleaning houses and trying to make ends meet, when she was desperate and had no one to go to, no one to help. Bill needed me at that time. Who helped her? Who helped her pay her rent for a year, man? That was me. That was me. And now this poor woman's life has ended. Accidentally or on purpose, we'll never know. It ended in the foyer of my castle and all the fingers of all these people. These people that I helped. And you know I did. All these fingers are pointed at me. It's convenient for them to forget about everything else. They all need someone to be the patsy. I'm their patsy, apparently. I'm the guy. And so they spread these rumors, and that's what they are, rumors. Rumors about my character. Rumors about my actions and my impulses. They spread these rumors to make themselves feel better and to drag my name through the mud. They're all rewriting history. That's what they're doing. They're rewriting history so that years down the road, when people talk about Phil Spector, people are only going to talk about this awful thing that happened in my home, about how I'm a bully. How could they hate somebody whose records are filled with so much love they aren't going to talk about you've lost that loving feeling or imagine or about he's a rebel. And not only love, but honesty. They're not going to talk about how I pioneered a revolution in pop music. I was the bridge between Elvis and the Beatles, man. That's what John said. So much pure fucking talent. I was 20 when I made my first number one record. I'll make anybody think they're bigger than they are. I created a new sound, a new way to make records. That kind of person doesn't just come along every day. Because they don't know that kind of person, you see? The police, the district attorney, the judge, even the jury, man. They've never been around that kind of person before. They wouldn't know a musical genius from Adam. They don't understand Most of them are so young that the whole era is lost on them. They don't recognize the songs. But you know what kind of person these people all know? 
an evil person. Murderers, thieves, monsters, the district attorney and the judge and the police. They're all around those kinds of people all day, every day. So that's all they see. So he became the bad genius. They look at a person, and it doesn't matter how many hit records he has or how many mansions he's owned or how many Beatles he has in his Rolodex. They look at a person and they see the worst. That's what they're paid to do. And then the jurors, they're on a steady diet of Law and Order, Judge Judy, or whatever the cop or courtroom TV show of the day is. They speak in remedial legalese. They think they're all junior detectives. Maybe he was evil. But they don't know anything about it. They say I was standing close to her when the gun went off, that I was only two feet away. That's what the forensics team said. Well, what does the forensics team know about anything? They weren't there. All they have is one piece of the puzzle, a tiny little piece that they looked at under a microscope. They aren't privy to the circumstances. They don't know who was doing what or who was saying what. They don't know anything about it. None of them do. I can't really venture to guess on what he was thinking. They all think they know me. But they've never tried to know me. And they never will. April 13th, 2009, Los Angeles. Six years after the death of Lana Clarkson, Phil Spector was found guilty of second-degree murder. At the time of his sentencing, he was 69 years old. It was Spector's second murder trial in two years. The first trial, in 2007, was televised. Spector did not testify. The jury deliberated for 15 days, but couldn't reach the necessary unanimous verdict. It ended in mistrial, hung jury. The second trial was the charm. At the retrial, prosecutors called Spectre a very dangerous man and detailed his history playing Russian roulette with women. Spectre's lawyers fought back and went after Spectre's own personal bad guys, the cops. The judge noted that this was not an isolated incident. The taking of innocent human life, he said, it doesn't get any more serious than that. Spectre's love of firearms, his uncontrollable temper, and his violent and volatile history with women came back to haunt him. Even his music, his art, came back to haunt him. One of the first songs he recorded with the Crystals, He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss, certainly didn't do any favors to his notorious reputation. After a five-month trial, the jury returned their unanimous verdict. Spectre sat in the courtroom, stone-faced, as the judge read the verdict. Nineteen years to life. Spectre stared straight ahead, stared out into space. He made no movement. All he did was blink his eyes. He showed no emotion. He didn't indicate that he was listening at all. In addition to the sentence, Spectre was ordered to write a check to the Clarkson family for 17 grand to cover funeral expenses. 
the judge denied Spectre's request for a third trial, Spectre's lawyer promised to appeal. And then the man who once said, I could strut sitting down, I was so brazen, walked a far less confident strut from the courtroom directly to jail. The bailiff shuffled Spectre out of the courtroom, out of his dark pinstripe suit and red silk tie and into his California Department of Corrections issued costume. That moment of transition sealed the deal. He was no longer Phil Spector, the producer, or Phil Spector, the musical genius. He was no longer Phil Spector, the supposed celebrity. He was now Phil Spector, the murderer. Phil Spector, the gun nut. Phil Spector, the explosive perfectionist. Phil Spector, the womanizer, the boozer, the psycho loner up in the castle on the hill who wore Batman costumes in air-conditioned darkness. It was back to being the loner he was as a child, the one who was different, ostracized, misunderstood. He was no longer the bully. He'd be bullied from now on, just like he'd been bullied in school. Now, 11 years later, Phil Spector is 80 years old and spends his days at a prison healthcare facility in Stockton, California, where he has been since October 2013. He is eligible for early parole in 2025. Spectre's musical productions remain some of the greatest of the 20th century. River Deep, Mountain High, You've Lost That Lovin' Feelin', and My Sweet Lord are the songs of an auteur, works of art made possible by a process and a style that was as myopic as it was universal. In later years, as musical and social trends continued to evolve, Spectre became increasingly stubborn and refused to evolve with everyone else. But even some of his later productions, albums by Leonard Cohen and Dion, though initially panned upon their release, have risen in critical acclaim. Phil Spector's identifiable stamp, whether delivered as a wall of sound or stripped down and raw, remains a stunning time capsule, moments frozen in amber or at least pressed into wax. For many, it's rapturous pop music that'll never be topped. But for many others, it's hard to separate the art from the artist. The music, filled with so much love, was, in fact, the brainchild of a petty, vindictive, and abusive man. Because no matter how much love is on the tracks, no matter how much honesty is on the tracks, no matter how much pure fucking talent is on the tracks, it's all tainted. All the love, honesty, and talent are tainted by blood. It's all there. The blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season 2 featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is Season 1 with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode featured Chris Anzalone as Phil Spector. 
Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. All right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll up.